0: about her so I can't be with
1: her or him right well, well that's, that's crazy if you are, are related and I'm uh, this is 10 uh, um, it's not totally related but I'll say it anyway because it came to mind while we were talking and I think I may have said this to you once before um uh, again when I was a teenager I fell in love uh, this was the mid uh, to like the like 77 78 79. Uh, I fell in love with punk rock and things of of that nature. And so one group, one of the very first groups, uh, some people would debate whether they were punks. One of the first groups that I really loved was the jam. And so I went, you're British, right? I love the uh,
0: jam, man. Right.
1: So I went to Jimmy's Music World in Manhattan to try to find jam albums. And I looked through the bin, and I found there were a few jam albums there, and one was it, All Mod Cons had just come out, and uh, 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 In the City was there, and but the album cover because I didn't know the difference we didn't and we didn't have the internet that so I was doing it more just based on feel. I loved the album cover of This Is the Modern World, right? right. So I bought that, and I took it home, and I listened to it over and over and over again for months and months and months, and it got me into the jam heavy duty, and I ended up buying all their albums, and I would follow you know Paul Weller's stuff after, and I saw him live, and all kinds of things, and it expanded my interest of punk like out into Gang of Four and all these things. So. I became very interested in in lots of different kind of alternative music at the time. The reason why I'm telling you this story is because many years later, I had read an article. I'd never read about any of these groups really. They weren't written about in American press much. I'm sure if you really searched, you could find it, but they weren't written about much. And so many years later, I read something about the jam where it said, this is the modern world. I'd have to go back and find out exactly uh, uh, what it had said, but it was something like, it it was something like that this album was considered such a down point in the jam's career that they almost broke up because of it. That it was slammed by the critics, that the fans, a lot of fans didn't like it. Not the song, people love the song, this is the modern world, but like sure. the album in totality, you know, like blah, blah, blah. There was like apparently there was this maelstrom of badness around right. this album that they overcame and then produced just glorious stuff afterwards. But anyway, the point I want to make is I'm very cautious about reading something before I get to study the thing itself, mm-hmm. because I don't want other people's really their opinions kind of clouding. Because here's the thing, if if I knew that stuff ahead of time, I probably would never have bought This is the Modern World. And if I didn't buy This is the Modern World, for all I know, I would never have loved the jam. Maybe I wouldn't have bought anything of the jam. Maybe I would have thought, oh, yeah, that group's they're going to break up any day anyway. You know, and maybe that, if, I great if I if I didn't listen to the jam, then maybe I'd say, oh, the Buzzcocks, this is one of those groups like them. I'm not going to listen to them. Like, you know, who knows what it would be, but it, it's the idea of, of, I try to go into things as pure. It's not really possible, but as pure as possible
0: in but order to For
1: me, that is just
0: such a great point because you know, we are, we're living in this world right now that is so externally influenced. Yes. You know, we, we you know, uh, Hillary Clinton is corrupt. Well, was she corrupt 10 years before she was corrupt? Um, or did social media, did media tell us that? Um, you know, uh, she went from being this woman who stood by her husband to being, the, you know, this corrupt individual. Now... Yeah, I'm not saying any of it's true or not true. That's actually not my point. My point is that we get a framework of somebody that is given to us, and in this context it could have been the gem. Um, there were there's there's music. For instance, if I take a music like I, I'm like you, you and I have very eclectic Tastes in music, and you know, you, you're one of the few Americans I can talk about uh, talk about the Buzzcots and you know, and Paul Weller and those kinds of things too, because people like, who the hell is Paul Weller, right? And who is the Buzzcots? Are you crazy, right? Okay, so you know, you and I get that we have a, a wide variety of music, but if I was to pick a type of music I don't like, it's country music. I am just not a fan of country music, but I'm also smart enough to know there are country music songs I really like.
1: Right. That's a good and, way to put it. Right.
0: But, but it's also this understanding that we, 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 we tend to shove things in big boxes and say, okay, I don't want anything to do with that. I disagree with that. You know,
1: Or <laughs> this is all bad. Yeah. I, I remember I took a wonderful writing course many years ago. Everything I did good was years ago. I never talk about anything now. Uh, oh, I'll ask Stella that, ask your wife about that. I, no, no, that's too <laughs> But I, uh, uh, um, so years ago I, I took a writing course in Greenwich Village and it was wonderful. And what you did was the assignment each week was they gave you a specific work by a specific author and you read like a page or two or three of it. And then you were supposed to mimic their approach or their Mm. voice to like, let's say your own topic, whatever it is you were gonna write about. You, You weren't supposed to necessarily copy them, but it's like in this scene, they start from far away and then they go up closer and then closer to, until they get to a window. Uh, in uh, in a house. So I want you writer. Okay. (laughs) I want you writer to do the same thing. You don't have to like, it doesn't have to be a city to a house to a window. I want you to start further back and then eventually cut into small detail. Like that's what, that's where our assignment was every week. Um, And if their voice influenced you at all, that was fine. It was just an exercise. And so I remember loving that class and loving the assignment each week. And one day, the assignment was the assignment that I just discussed. It was Ballad of the Sad Cafe by Carson McCullers. It was that novel. And I remember, now I feel differently. Oh, this is something else to talk about. Now I feel differently. But at the time, I disliked that book. When I read it, you know, I read about the first 15 pages or so, and I just didn't like it. I thought it was tedious or so. But nevertheless, uh, um, the exercise that I did that week based on trying to mimic that was the best exercise I had done all year. So, in other words, reading the things that I liked best produced good exercise good writing from me but reading the one thing that I seriously disliked for some reason allowed me to top those other things in my writing so in other words you don't know where you're going to get inspiration and good ideas from you know you may be pushing something off to the side and something that's really helpful to for you again it's like you know this is the modern world it's you know like that kind of thing you know, here that opened up, not just a love of the jam, but a love of a certain kind of music and in a far reaching way when other people were saying, oh my God, like this thing's horrible, you know, yeah, but it's the same thing with this, uh, 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 Ballad of the Sad Cafe with Carson McCullers. Years later, I read it and I loved it and I loved her writing and, uh, um, um, I used to review things for newspapers or so. I used to review movies. I reviewed uh, sports books and things of that nature. And I really stopped doing that because I was so tired in standing in judgment Mm. of people who were at least trying to do something good. Yes. You know, like, and perhaps I should let go of that thought. You know, and maybe I should go back to reviewing things or so, like maybe I'll think differently about it now. But I know for the past many years, I have not done that just because after a while, it just seemed artificial to me to adopt a stance of sitting in judgment of you. You know, when you were trying to do something, you know, like- you I were think you, just, you just said something there that's really important.
0: Um, again, you know, again- Was it about mucus? This- no, it wasn't about mucus this time, but you know, in the context of, um, sitting in judgment, I think that that's something that social media has given us so much power around. I mean, I, I, I think that the social media and the internet has given us the ubiquity of creation that we can create and we can, we can put it out there and, and we can, we can make it available to everybody. But, so can criticism and and you know the critics who sit on the sidelines uh, with some um, some hashtag but no no personality and never do anything but really are great at criticizing. It's like you know there's something always been wrong with that, and I, I think it's just uh, for me that's not true. But for me, it, it, it's there's always been something wrong with that, but. It seems more accessible, more, it seems easier today, more ubiquitous that everybody is a critic. But are you willing to step in and be the one willing to be criticized? You know, and so it, it's fascinating for me because the other, another part of you, another facet of your personality is this that you, you know, you uh, designed this incredibly uh, long-running, most highly rated magic show, um, and you're a a magician, right? So, you know, that's something that you're, you know, when I think about being a magician, I think about two kinds of magicians. There are kids, right, who bought a magic set and are practicing it and are pretty crap, but it's entertaining because it's kids and they're doing it. And then there are phenomenal magicians, you know, the the street magicians like David Blaine, who, you know, are just doing amazing things and blowing everybody's freaking mind. And then there's everybody in between. Like, so for me, there's only like two really, you know, everything else is in between. And most of those are pretty crappy and they're wearing bad suits. This is in my mind. It's not the truth.
1: Right.
0: You know, they're wearing bad suits and they're they're in miserable lives and they're trying to do this, but they're not very good. And, you know, there's all that stuff going on. And it's not true. And and yet, between the kid who starts off practicing with his magic set that his dad bought him for Christmas and becoming David Blaine, is or or even, you know, uh, uh, Chris, what was his name? Chris Angel or who anybody who's become famous is thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours of practice. And more than that, for me, because the practice can be a discipline, but thousands upon thousands upon thousands of rejections and ridicule and potentially people's, you know, you know, you know, oh, you're a nerd because you do magic or you're an idiot or, God, nobody's interested in this. I mean, Chris Angel, you know, he's got that gothic look and, you know, he's a cool dude, right? David Blaine is kind of a cool dude. But in between becoming a cool dude and, and, and being a kid with a magic set is a whole lot of geekdom. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, don't,
1: I hear what you're saying. I don't quite look at it that way. Oh, I'm sure you don't. That's why I'm saying yeah, it, because yeah, you're in my right. world. You're saying it's in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Especially now, magic's kind of looked upon as kind of cool, you know. Right. By, uh, but, yeah, uh, there, there was uh, there was a time when magic was done in such an artificial way that that kind of stereotype would have been there. You know, that the magician was unlike other members of society in like some kind of, you know, dated way. Mm -hmm. But starting with, you know, people like Doug Henning in the 70s and wonderful performers who you may not have heard of like Paul Harris and people of that nature. They started- Paul Harris is British. Yeah, Paul Harris, no, no.
0: Okay.
1: From uh, I forget he was from Washington State or someplace. Okay. Um, 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 but like these people. Now you could say if people remember Doug Henning or if you watched a video of Doug Henning, you might say he's wearing like a sequin jumpsuit. <laughs> like how can you say he's natural? He's not dressed like we're, we're dressed. But nevertheless, in the '70s, it was more like of a hippie environment, and Doug Henning. Um, very interestingly, uh, by the way, Canadian, Um, um, Doug Henning, the way he approached magic, it was rather than saying, I'm powerful, and I'm going to make this amazing thing happen. Doug Henning was more about that the universe is miraculous. And I've seen something miraculous about the universe, and I want to show you what I've seen that's miraculous. Mm. Like, let's share together in enjoying this miraculous aspect of the world. And with such enthusiasm, and you know, like that kind of thing, that to me, that is just so endearing. So I don't really recognize the nerd stuff as much as you do, although I understand where, where that would come from. To me, yeah, uh, and that's the perception in society that well, I was
0: just talking about, right? Right,
1: right. Uh, and uh, I don't know if this is related to what we're talking to, but the the idea, uh, something that I've always found very interesting about the idea of creation. So I like to do a bunch of different things. I said I'm one faceted. I actually perhaps am like one and a quarter faceted. It's like my hat, <laughs> my hat size is one and a quarter facets. So... Um, So I've had to create magic tricks. And when I've created magic tricks, in order to create them, I see the entire world as if it's a magic trick. So I walk around like when I have to create, in other words, the key key here is for me, I have to create tricks. Let's say a show that I'm supposed to be working on. So I start looking at objects and things that are happening in the world as pattern lines, as themes, as methodologies. You know, I'm noticing things that would have gone right by me if I didn't have to create that magic trick. It's the same thing, by the way, with humor. Uh, I've done stand-up. I've written jokes for shows. I've done other things. When I have to write stand-up, or pardon me, when I have to write jokes for things. I really start seeing the world in jokes, mm. but but in other words, I, I, I mean I see things funny all the time. But when I have to write jokes, it's like at the top of mind in everything. I'll give you a, a perfect example. I told you that that show Mystery Science Theater three thousand. So one of the things I worked on is when they did, which was at the time the biggest. They 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 raised six point two million dollars to like film twelve episodes on Kickstarter or whatnot. At the time, it was the highest for an entertainment project. It was the highest in some category of all time. Uh, this was a few years ago, but they had written a letter telling people, "Oh yeah, if you bid, if you give us this much money, we'll give you this swag or so." So for yep. instance, so. I uh, so someone there said, "Oh Mark, um, why why don't you punch up the letter with a few jokes? Like if you think of jokes, like send us some jokes for the, for the letter that was already written." Yeah. And so I was looking at the letter and they 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 talked about like part of the swag was getting a t-shirt, you know, with the MST3K on it. Anyway, long story short, I'm walking around that day and I have to go to Walmart to get something, to buy something. And I walk past the clothing section and I saw the clothing section. I saw piles of t shirts, colored t shirts, um, but like some of the piles are super tall and mm-hmm. others are not. And from far away, I say, I bet you the tall ones are like extra, extra large or so You know what I mean? And so I go over and I look at these varying heights of piles and I'm right. It's that certain sizes, but here's, here's what that became. I went back to my house and I wrote in the joke when we were talking about the t-shirts in parentheses, I wrote the joke, uh, uh, why do t-shirts come in extra small and extra large, but not extra medium? So I'm not saying it's the world's greatest joke, whatever, but it's from having to see, I knew that I had an obligation to fulfill in writing jokes. So I started to use the world to fulfill that obligation. I put on the joke filter in the same way, when I have to do magic tricks, I have on this magic filter. In the same way, if I'm writing a speech or branding, a uh, uh, positioning differentiation, I walk around and like just everything is about differentiation to me. Like Can I'll you just talk go, to us about that Mark? Can you talk to us about that,
0: that mechanism? Do you, do you recognize a mechanism that you have to put on the filter? Because yeah, yeah. the filter of, being, of writing jokes is different than the filter of, of uh,
1: differentiation or of being a magician. So, I, look uh, at them, <clears throat> I look at them as somewhat the same that I'm kind of looking for anomalies. Okay. I, I'm looking, uh, uh, sometimes when I coach people on creating content or so, the two chief questions I have them ask themselves is, what about my subject do I know that's obvious? And what do I know about my subject that's surprising? Those are the two two filters. And so to me, uh, obvious is interesting in the fact that often when people are trying to create something, they get so tense trying to come up with something so important that they freeze themselves that they get kind of stuck. So to me, obvious, and I say, and I mean obvious, I mean stuff that's so apparent that, that you're almost embarrassed to say it, like about your subject. So when they start to do that, obvious allows them to relax. And I, like half the time, they come up with a breakthrough by just listing things that are obvious about their subject or about their background or whatever it is, because now they've so relaxed and right they trick themselves into a genius moment to go back to where we were in the beginning the same thing with surprise it's kind of i'm not telling them to be smart i'm just saying what in the situation if you were if someone were following or you know following around with you what would they find what would you see that that they would find surprising like what are the things, and it's just to me within those twin casings of obviousness and surprise, there's just so much stuff lurking in the world.
0: Well, when in- you when in- you were on when you were on leadership and loyalty, we had talked about this, uh, <clears throat> and I you know and I, I I highlighted that point because I thought it was a, a powerful point because one of the things that you and I talked about was assumptive knowledge, uh, and assumptive knowledge is where where we assume that everybody knows what we know. In fact, we'll even say, but everybody knows that. And we talked about the example of the brewery. and uh, oh, right. All, right. Bre- all breweries do this. Ford Hopkins. Right, right, but nobody, nobody even mentions it. It's obvious because everybody does it, but it isn't obvious to the public. And there's that assumptive knowledge piece. And, and it was a really, I thought it was a really brilliant moment in that interview where you gave us that exercise to say, go away and write a list of what's obvious about y- to you, right? So you get past your own assumptive knowledge and what's obvious to you. Like, it's just obvious, you know? And I, and I hear people say that, and, you know, I, I've always paid attention to that, but it became really poignant for me after you and I had that original conversation, which was to say, when people say, well, everybody knows that, or, of course. And I've all, I, I, for 30 years, I've pulled people up on this words, of course, because of course is assumptive.
1: Right, right. Well,
0: do you love your wife? Of course. Why is that? Of course. And I will always say, why is that? Of course. Do you not know that lots of people are married who don't love each other? Yeah. Right. And then they'll say, yeah, of course. Oh, well, okay, there's another of course. So, uh, of course means I have now assumed everybody knows what I know. That's what of course means. So, I love that you say, well, look at what's obvious. Because what you're actually saying is, look at what you put of course into. And right. that's and so, but what you're doing in this, because I want to really dig into this filter piece, because it's it's not the of course for you. It's. It's this ability to look for the anomalies, right? You're saying like looking at the anomalies, which I think is fascinating. So can you walk us a little bit through that? Because I think that that is actually part of your genius. I know that when you and I, like, you know, when we we meet and we're having our conversations and we go off on bent tangents. I mean, you know, we've often both said this should be recorded because it's just twisted. Because we go off on these weird tendons that are the anomalies
1: right, of something, right? right? Whether right. my beard matches my shirt or whatever it might be, you know. Right. Or oh, we, we talk about the entire universe from mucus to phlegm and back, <laughs> back and forth and everything in from, between. From mucus to Nazis to pancakes. Right, exactly. Um,
0: By the way, I think I'm going to title this episode from mucus to Nazis.
1: I'm going to use those three. Nazi pancakes. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Nazi pancakes.
1: Um, Mucus-filled
0: Nazi pancakes. um,
1: Yeah, so you were saying about this idea of filter. Years ago, I called it one concept thinking. Mm -hmm. I called it one concept thinking. And I just, I remembered, uh, I'm sure I have it on my computer, uh, but you had me turn everything off in the background so that our signal would go well. So I can't. I can't verify that, what what this quote is. But years ago, I'm not saying this is where I developed it. I just developed it naturally. It just, uh, when you're obsessive, you just Mm -hmm. develop this way of thinking. But what I was gonna say is George Martin, the producer of the Beatles, I had a quote from him to substantiate this thought. Uh, Martin said, he was talking about when the Beatles were first experimenting with Backwards tapes. It must mm-hmm. have been sixty-five. Uh, yeah. It must have been. It, it was definitely f- around revolver uh, revolver time. Yeah, you know, like that time, and so they were experimenting. All of them were going home and taking tapes and reversing them and cutting them up and and so forth, and like vocals and drums and all kinds of things. And uh, George Martin had said you know, like they, when they found out about this technique, like they just started to do it to everything, Mm -hmm. just as an experiment, you know, they just started doing it. And so to me, that idea of doing it to everything, because you can't know ahead of time what the right thing is, because you're experimenting, Right. you can't know, like, you know, Experimenting doesn't mean that you're you're only doing what's right. Experimenting means is that you're trying and you're taking chances and you're trying to make accidents happen and so forth, right? So since you can't, if you pick and choose, you might be inducing a bias into it, as you say. So yeah. you really shouldn't pick and choose. You should just try to overwhelm reality, with that one way of seeing for a temporary period of time you know like how do you how yeah. do you do that I mean you said
0: you look for anomalies but how do you do that how do you induce that focus of looking for anomalies or seeing you know like like being like the Beatles and Every, every piece of music now gets played back. Well, uh, uh, give me an example, uh, like what? In magic, in Well, just- let's, let's go to magic because we haven't, you know, let's, let's go there. I want to go to it with writing too, but let's go to it with magic first.